0: Good afternoon, everyone. Please join me in the Word of God at Hebrews 10. I'll be reading verses 5 through 7. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O oh God. Well, the... Uh, Month of August is a busy month, like wrapping up summer, and uh, the summer's flying by, and the first full weekend of August is always a busy one locally. Without any major pandemics around, every first weekend of August, we have the reenactment of the rebels and the Redcoats fighting at Old Serbage Village. It's interesting. It's good. We've been there. Also out of Sturbridge, we have the PMC, which is the Pan Mass Challenge. I did that ride many years for, for a few years. It's one of the biggest fundraisers for a cure for cancer. 176 to 211 miles in two days, depending on where you start. So a lot of activity locally, but of all things going on, all of you who are gathered today to worship and to partake of the Lord's Supper You have chosen the best thing to do. The Lord's Supper is an extremely weighty matter to partake of. And it's a privilege and it's an honor as children to God to partake in such a treasured blessing. A couple years ago, our small group did a study on spiritual disciplines for the Christian life, written by Donald Whitney, same author as the book we did last year, but a different book. It's one of those books that you can reread from time to time. If you want a spiritual workout, I highly recommend it that you read it. It's written after the command of 1 Timothy 4.7, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Spiritual disciplines are those personal and corporate disciplines that promote spiritual growth. They are the habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times such as Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, service, stewardship, fasting, silence and solitude, journaling, learning, memorizing scripture, and the list goes on and on. The disciplines are considered channels of God's grace, through which these practices that the believer does, there is grace that comes from God and flows through them. So if you're serious about killing the flesh and feeding the spirit, You'll discipline yourself to intentionally place yourself into these channels of grace. This is how you, the battle is won, and you continue to grow in grace. Godly people are disciplined people. It takes intentional, committed work. Paul's words to Timothy and First Timothy 4, 7, 8 are, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is possible for all things since it holds a promise for the present life and also the life to come. There's some words to live by. Discipline for godliness holds a promise for right now and also for the life that is coming. As exercise builds muscle, spiritual discipline is fueling a healthy soul and mind, so intentionally placing yourself into these disciplines Is a fantastic practice for the children of God. One of my favorite channels of divine grace is the Lord's Supper. It's a special Sunday, Communion Sunday. It's always the first Sunday of the month, and we can plan on it, pray on it, meditate on it, and by doing so, we're preparing ourselves for the Lord's table. We can think and meditate on the Lord's Supper during the week. You can prepare yourself to participate in the Lord's Supper. Don't just go through the motions, Please but really think on it and dwell on it. We should remind ourselves of the gospel daily, and is that not what we celebrate when we come to communion together? It's celebrated corporately with the body of Christ, and there are some graces and blessings that our Lord gives to his children only when done corporately. Done with the children of God and corporate worship, and I believe the Lord's Supper is definitely one of them. So this afternoon I'm going to be speaking on the Lord's body. Jesus was all God and all man. 100% God, 100% man. Some may wrestle more with his godness and some with his humanity. But Jesus was obviously fully human to those who are around him. The Apostle John said in 1 John 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's an eyewitness account of what the apostles saw and heard and touched, that Jesus was fully human. The interesting thing is is that we don't read in the Word about Jesus ever being accused of not being fully human, but we often read of him being accused of not being fully God. It wasn't until after his death and resurrection when Gnosticism came, and that's when he was accused of not being really fully human, along with other heresies. And that's what we've been studying in first John at Sandy's house on Friday's nights. So God became like us to save us. When he came to earth, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond and being made in the likeness of man. Hebrews two, fourteen and fifteen says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus became like us to save us. He had to take on flesh and blood because you can't kill God. But as a man, he could die, defeat death and the fear of it because God's children share in flesh and blood. So God, the eternal son, took on flesh and blood, namely, so he could die. So in dying, defeating Satan and sin and death, the king must die before he reigns, or the justice of his reign would only bring judgment on all, and not salvation. Jesus was as human as you and I. As a child, he had to learn how to talk and form the words in his mouth with his tongue. He had to learn to count in the alphabet. He had to learn the name of the animals he created. As a child growing up, he learned to depend on his parents. In Luke 2:40, we read, "And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him." In 52, it says, "And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and found favor with God and man." He got hungry after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He became tired and fell asleep in a small boat during a windstorm. A Samaritan woman gave him water because he was thirsty. And like every other Jewish father, Joseph taught him his trade. During his ministry, he must have had great joy in his heart, seeing others coming to faith. He marveled at the faith of a Roman centurion soldier. He also experienced great sorrows as he often wanted to gather Jerusalem's children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and they were unwilling. He wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. John Calvin said, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh, exactly like us, body, mind, heart, and soul. He felt loneliness during his ministry. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He felt the pains of those who abandoned him. In John 6, after teaching about the true manna from heaven, as a result of this, his disciples redrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to leave also, do you? And of course, his ultimate pain of loneliness was experienced on the cross when the Father forsook him. Jesus had his own will, just like us, but much different than us, he always did the Father's will. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. In his flesh, he was tempted in every way that we are tempted. And was always victorious over temptations. And the resurrection is God the Father's seal on that truth which makes him our perfect great high priest. Jesus' body was like us in every respect. 33 years of complete submission to the Father, always in His will, being tested and tried as a human in a fallen world, but always victorious. Hebrews 10.5, where we just read, it said, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you take no pleasure. The, The author of Hebrews often quotes the Old Testament to show his readers that the Old Covenant was fulfilled completely in Jesus Christ. The perfect body of Christ, God's perfect plan of redemption. God took no pleasure in the sacrifice and offerings because they couldn't ever take away sins. They were all shadows pointing to the substance. Every animal slain was God preparing the world for the true and perfect sacrifice. Christ's perfect body for sacrifice for our sins was completely effective, first of all, because it was God's will all along. God knew before the world was created that the blood and sacrifice of bulls and goats would be ineffective. From the beginning, he planned that Jesus was to come and rescue his children. The sacrificial lamb, perfect in every way, the eternal son, needed a body, one without spot, blemish, or defect. The perfect body of Christ was prepared for him so he could take the place of sinners and become sin so that the sinners could become the righteousness of God in him. It's totally amazing when you dwell on it. Jesus needed hands and feet to receive nails. He needed a face to be smacked and punched and spat upon. He needed a back to receive the scourging of a whip. He needed a side for a spear. He needed a brow for the thorns. And he needed a brain and a spinal column to feel the excruciating pain. Don't take for granted the love of God. Truly is amazing love. And it's good for us to linger on these amazing truths. In 1 Peter two four, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He bore our sins, the extremely heavy weight of sin that was on us all. Christ took on himself and carried those to the cross. I'm reminded of Christian and Pilgrim's Progress and that massive heavy weight of sin. He had it on his back. Jesus took that burden off of us, praise God, and he bore its ugly weight on the cross. Only he could bear that massive weight, and he did it. The perfect, fully human body of our Lord Jesus was able to take our sins, past, present, and future, and have them atoned for. He saw saw us in in our helpless estate, and he willingly came to rescue us from the domain of darkness. The fact that he bore our sins means that he suffered the penalty for all the sins of all who would ever be forgiven. He received the wrath of the Father so we could be pardoned. There is great application in this verse because it says he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. When Jesus died, he died so that believers might die also to sin and live to righteousness. That is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live now, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, does not change only the believers standing before God, but it also changes their nature. We are not only justified, but also being sanctified. Transform sinners into saints. The word here for might die is in First Peter 2.4 is not the normal word for die. It means to be away from, depart, or be missing, or cease existing. Jesus died for the believers to be separated from their sins penalty so it could never condemn them. The record of our sins, the indictment of guilt that had us all headed to hell was nailed to the cross. Jesus paid our complete debt to God in full. We are free from the penalty of sin, delivered from its dominating power, and now able to live to righteousness. This is how we have been healed by his wounds. So I would encourage us all not to come to the Lord's table mindlessly, just doing what Christians do. Number one, this is about redemption. Are you in need of forgiveness, of deliverance, of grace? Then this table is for you. Jesus celebrated the Passover meal, recalling God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. A good reminder that God is eager to save his people. As Jesus observed the Passover meal, he took it to the whole other level, claiming that it was ultimately about him being the true Lamb of God. He is, the son, he is the son that God does not spare, so that we may be spared. We celebrate this meal together because we have been delivered from death and hell and because we know that we are in need of daily grace. This meal is completely planned by Jesus. When you read about the Lord's Supper in the gospel, Jesus gives elaborate instructions to Peter and John about finding a man carrying a picture of water, falling him into a house and asking about a room. Jesus carefully plans this meal then says to the disciples, "I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, before I suffer." I believe the Lord rejoices in seeing struggling redeemed sinners Come to his table. Also, as the men bring the bread and the juice to you, it's a great symbol how Jesus sought us out for us. And the Lord's Supper looks forward to the anticip- and anticipate the future feast in the kingdom of God. When we ho- what we hold in our hands with the bread and the juice is just a little full t- foretaste of the full and final feast, and that is coming. We are. Reminded vividly of Jesus' substitutionary death, we are, we are to recall the horror of the cross. The soldiers, the nails, the scourging, the thorns, play the scene over with your mind. And you were there with your sins. This is special corporate grace here whenever we assemble together, but especially when we, separate, when we celebrate our Lord's Supper together. I'll close with a short quote from R.C. Sproul. He that eats the bread and drinks the wine in a right spirit will find himself drawn into closer communion with Christ and will feel to know him more and understand him better.
1: Turn with me to John chapter 19, and after I finish my message, we're going to have a series of songs that are going to be sung out of the hymnal So be sure you have a hymnal nearby you that you can grab. We're going to start with 201 when we go to the hymns. Okay. John chapter 19. Our brother spoke about the body. I have the second half of the sermon. I'm going to speak about the blood. Jesus said, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. There it is. The body, the bread, and my blood, the cup. Those two... Our emblematic today, and our hopes are that through these messages, great one delivered, brother, thank you for all the content of what you brought before us. We often don't remember the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he had to take on a body. Without a body, he couldn't do what would need to be accomplished to satisfy God's wrath against our sins. Matter of fact, when you think of all world religions, and you think of the heads of these religions, the Buddhas and the Mohammeds and so on, there would be no concept in their religious system for their leader to benefit their followers by death. But in Christianity, it was necessary for Christ to die. He says, for this cause came I unto this hour. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Peter, when he heard about Jesus talking about having to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things of the elders and be crucified, Peter says, not so, Lord. Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan wanted to detour Jesus as well from going to the cross. That's why he proposed to him various things. And one of them was just fall down and worship me. The devil is saying this to Jesus. And I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Boy, that sounds like a shortcut. That's all he had to do is bow the knee at that moment and he would have got what he ultimately is going to get by his crucifixion and resurrection. Because it tells us in the book of Revelation that all the kings of the world and of our Christ that belong to him. That's going to be the ultimate end. That Christ's death will be profiting in that way. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all the remnants of sin will be removed in that future day. Turn with me now to John 19, and we're going to read at verse number 30. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, King James says vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. When he drank of it, he said, I wonder how he said it. Just think of his toil from birth to now death. From nine o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon. What was transpiring during those hours? Why wasn't Jesus just on the cross for one hour? Why did he just do away with uh, the punishment that had to be taken for the penalty of his people in just an hour or two or three. Why the sixth hours? What we read in the middle of those six hours at noontime, it said the sun was darkened. What does that mean? No eye could see at that point what was transpiring on the cross. Those were sufferings that were taking place that only God and God himself could undertake and understand. We will never plumb the depths of the riches of the atoning work of Christ when he suffered there on Calvary. That darkness hindered all humanity from fully understanding and even the redeemed will never fully understand how the depth of our sins could have been paid in full by Jesus. We'll be praising the Lamb of God forever and ever for what He accomplished for us. There'll be no ending to this theme. Oftentimes themes come to a close and we've exhausted it. But that will be a theme that will never end. We will be constantly in the mode of unto Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Hallelujah. That's the kind of reaction that we will have constantly and permanently in the glory above. Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That's why he was able to bow his head. No one took his life from him. No one snatched him away from this world. They didn't suffocate him by crucifixion. He could have stayed on the cross indefinitely. But when the work that He came to accomplish was completed, then He could say, victoriously, it is finished. And the echo of those words come down for generations of time. So when you and I approach the cross, we can say, hallelujah, what a Savior. And join in the song writer who who wrote, it is finished was His cry, now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior the work of the penalty of your sins, brothers and sisters, was paid for in full at Calvary. It is finished. That was an official word that would be used for debtors to have to uh, 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 indicate that the debt was paid for in full and a literal stamp would be placed on something to give assurance to that person that the debt was completed. Praise God for the transaction that has taken place and for these words. Now let's read on. The Jews therefore, because it was a preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross upon the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Why is this? Of course the Jews with their rigidity on Sabbath keeping and so on, had an urgency to remove the bodies before the sabbath set in so therefore there would be no work needed in taking the bodies off of the cross and they couldn't be done the following day because they would be breaking the sabbath so therefore they had to end the lives of the crucifixion victims and do it speedily let's read on then came the soldiers and they broke the legs of the first, that's the first thief on one side, and then on the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they didn't and couldn't, and there was no need to break his legs. Now why would they break the legs? They would have something like what we might call a sledgehammer. And that that hammer would be whipped smashing the legs of the the crucifixion victim so that his ability to boost himself up would now be disabled so his body would now sink, if you will. And therefore the suffocation process would be expedited very quickly as soon as the, the legs were broken. The other two, that's exactly what happened. But when they came to Jesus... He's already dead. There's no need to break his legs. Why? It tells us why. That the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Verse 35. And he that saw it be a record, and his record is true, and he knows what he says is true, that you might believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be... How important is the Scripture to be fulfilled? That a a bone of his him shall not be broken and again another scripture says they shall look on him whom they have pierced you know when we read in Revelation chapter 1, 1 verse 7 it says behold he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him in all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him It is amazing to think that the piercing of the body of Jesus in the rib side will forever remain with Jesus. There's no healing of the wound. There's no removing of the sight of the puncture. But it will be there even at the second coming of Christ. So Jesus right now is occupying himself in a physical body seated at the right hand of God. But when he comes, he'll be recognized And it says, by especially those that pierced him. And I believe he's referring to the Jews in the Jewish community who were the responsible ones, although we're all guilty and we would all have done the same thing as Gentiles. They were not an exclusive class of, of bad eggs, so to speak. We were all as guilty as any Jew who was saying, away with this man and crucify him. They shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And just think of a day that's coming when we're going to look on Him whom we have pierced. And we can say He was pierced through for our faults. He was wounded for our transgressions. So our Savior is going to have the wounds in His body forever. That's going to be the sign and symbol to us of the cost that was paid to put away our sins in full. Now let's get to the portion I really would like to dwell on. In verse 36. For these things that the Scripture should be filled, a bone of his body shall not be broken. Oh, and let's go back to... uh, Oh yeah, that's what I want. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus... They saw that he was dead already, they broke, they didn't break his legs, now the next verse, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and this is what I want to occupy ourselves with for a moment, forthwith or at that moment came there out blood and water. Blood and water. The songwriter of the was it top lady who wrote the Rock of Ages hymn that said these words? Let said these words in the stanza. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side, which flowed, be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Let the water and the blood. We emphasize the blood, do we not? What is the significance of water? I'm sure those of you that are in the medical field might know more, of course, about this than we would, us lay people, regarding that. But from the side would come forth water. But the Scriptures signifies this in a special way, gives notice to the water being shed as well as the blood. Let's look at a Scripture. Mike, can we change the, uh, the, the next uh, slide? This is from 1 John 5. Written by the same author. This is he, this is referencing Jesus, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. How interesting that John mentions blood and water. This is not an easy text, by the way, to to uh, interpret And I'm not going to try to exposit it because I'm not prepared and I'd have to really give a little more thought to it. But I do want to draw your attention to the fact that John here in his epistle mentions Jesus with water and blood. Very unique. So when Jesus' side was pierced, there came forth water and brought blood. What does this signify? If we turn to the next slide from Hebrews chapter 9 verse 19 and following. For when, every command, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, this is after he had received the Ten Commandments and all, to all the people he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. A very important portion of the Word of God. Without shedding of blood there is no remission for sins. Not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? Not for sin could ever atone, but thy blood in thine alone. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It was an absolute necessity that the blood be shed. This goes way back in history. Leviticus 17 and 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. It's the blood. We boast in the blood. It tells us in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 14, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Interesting language. White in the blood of the Lamb. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Hallelujah. We can be described as those who are washed in the blood. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, to Be not deceived that neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor drunkards nor thieves nor practicing homosexuals etc etc shall inherit the kingdom of god praise god is not a period there because the next verse says what, what does verse 11 say richard come on help me here but such were some of you such were some of you but ye are washed Washed, sanctified, justified, name of the Lord Jesus, and by the Spirit of our God. We are ones who are described as washed. Before our conversions, we were unwashed. We were unclean. We could not enter into the kingdom of God. We had no rights to be able to call ourselves children of the true and living God, but we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's why we must preach Christ and Him crucified. It's not just Jesus alone, it's Jesus' work. Oh, and Jesus of course together they can't be separated but if you're just preaching a Jesus uh, seminar about all the lessons and uh, commandments that Jesus gave that's not going to save you because the ultimate end of it all is to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and we are the redeemed of the Lord water and blood I take it that the water is speaking of Cleansing, purification. You could say that the blood is for the elimination of sin. So we have both been washed clean and sins eliminated. And just think of this. Jesus was already dead. Why had more to be done? Well, number one, so the scripture could be fulfilled. That they would pierce him that's from Psalm 22 Zechariah 12:10 10 says they shall look upon him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his firstborn they had to pierce him who emphasizes the fact that since he's already dead why must a soldier pierce his side Surely to fulfill the scripture, just think from a human standpoint. He's already dead and it's almost as if he wants to do something more. Thy love man so sorely tried, proved stronger than the grave. The very spear that pierced thy side drew forth the blood to save. Just think of that heinous act of taking a spear and thrusting it into Jesus' side. And yet Jesus' response to that, if if you will, the hatred of man is highlighted in our hands being on that spear. But Jesus' response is one of great love and mercy and kindness and goodness, because he shed forth his blood. This is the only place in the scriptures where we have reference to Jesus' blood being shed. We, We understand, of course, when they pierced his head with the thorns and pounded them into his head that that would have drawn forth blood when his hands were, were nailed and his feet were nailed that surely would have uh, oozed blood but there's no biblical record of that but when the soldier pierces his side it drew forth the blood when is the blood drawn after Jesus said it is finished and here comes the blood for you and I that have that stream of love flowing out. How's that hymn go, Emmanuel's veins? How's that start? Help me out on that, folks. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me, that on the cross He shed His blood from sin to set me free. Well, you've been hearing about the body, and now you're hearing about the blood. The elements that are represented today are those that we can hark back and say, Hallelujah, what a Savior! That He would die in my room instead. That He would fulfill the Scriptures so that He could die for the sins of His people and satisfy the wrath of God against our sins. Brothers and sisters, there's no message like this on earth that could ever have been heard or ever will be heard, that the Son of God died in the place of guilty sinners, taking on a human body so that He could have the capacity to die, and then do a work that only a supernatural being like God Himself could accomplish on the cross to take away the sins that would have sent you and I to hell and the lake of fire forever. What a debt we owe to God for our sins. But God matched that with His Son paying the penalty in full so we go free. Hallelujah. What a Savior. May the Lord bless our morning worship this morning as we uh, uh, take our hymnals now to number 201 singing about the great grace of God that saved us.